This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to M3E. I have returning guest from down under, the kangaroo slayer himself, Drew Misson from You're Missing the Point. How are you, my friend? Good, mate. Very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Awesome. Um, I'm here to talk about Ned Kelly, someone that you may not have heard before, so and probably a lot of your listeners, considering he's a very Australian icon. Yes. Uh, I remember, God, this was what, probably a month ago when we were setting this up, and- yeah. I, you were posting stuff, and I was like, man, this, this is really interesting, because obviously, um, I show how dumb I am with sometimes with it, during cunt, not knowing where the frickin' Netherlands are, and I, sh- I should know that, <laughs> where Dutch comes from, but uh, yeah, world history and, you know, Aust- Australian history to boot, because not many people really know about the past down there. It's not common knowledge or stuff that's just shared about everybody just thinks you guys run around with big bowie knives and you know kill crocodiles and wrestle you know kangaroos and chase off emus and whatever you know what i mean and and you have aborigines and everything on the island is gonna kill you or the continent or whatever (laughs) yeah that's that's the uh the vibe that a lot of americans get about australia and i think it's uh, due a lot to the american education system where You've got this fantastic sense of patriotism, but it kind of stops there. It doesn't really go out into the world right. too much. But I think a lot of Australian history would um, would hit a core with a lot of Americans, especially a lot of the elements of the Ned Kelly story. Nice. For for the listeners, can you just give a, before we get too deep into it, who Ned Kelly was and what he w- was famous in Australia for? Yeah, so I've actually got like a whole breakdown of like the events surrounding his life. So essentially he was uh, an Australian outlaw who was fighting against the corrupt Victorian police force at the time and was from a poverty-stricken background who was a guy that really had to go into a life of crime to feed his family. And eventually he was, I believe, set up for one of his prison sentences, which kind of solidified his hatred of authority and he became a notorious bushranger which is our version of like your gunslingers from the old West. Okay. Um, he was responsible for a couple of bank robberies and stagecoach holdups, that type of thing. And eventually was caught and hung by the state. So in my little peanut brain, he would be an equivalent to a Robin hood, you know, kind yeah, of, kinda... he's, he's Australia's answer to a, uh, a Billy the kid or Robin hood. Okay. All right. Nice. And the, the guys that always go down in history as outlaws, but were actually probably true heroes. Yeah, they're the good guys all along, right? Mm-hmm. 
it's funny you mentioned Billy the Kid because everybody everybody here in America knows Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, you know, all, all those old gunslingers and you know, you, you don't think of that when you think Australia because you know, we're always told, oh, they they gave up their guns and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So, but the things were yeah, different the, back the, back in the day. Yes, this was a frontier country. Like, a, for a lot of people who may not know this, Australia is still vastly underdeveloped as a first world nation. So much that my own hometown, if you look at the old West pictures of the, the frontier towns, are there, there might be a saloon, uh, a bank, and like maybe a post office, and that was it. Okay. That's what my hometown looked like in the 1920s. Oh, wow. And it, it just boomed over time. The majority of Australia was like that for the longest time. So this was a wild time, a time where people did carry firearms and there was law of provocation as well. So people just used to shoot each other. It was a wild, wild west. Well, when you start out as a prison state, <laughs> things <laughs> things don't, don't uh, I don't know, stray far from that, you know, uh, but obviously they have now, but... Yeah, so before we get going, let people know. Obviously, I'm sure they do know. My audience knows where they can get a hold of you. But just in case we have new listeners, uh, plug your podcast wherever you can be found and any social media you want. And let's jump into some Ned Kelly. Awesome. Um, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast, M-I-S-S-E-N. It's a take on my surname. You can find me on all the usual podcatchers, uh, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all that type of stuff. Um, and find me on Instagram under missing underscore the underscore point. And for, for you guys out there, he is a little shadow band, uh, <laughs> but, but he does. I mean, you fire off so much content in, in a day's time that every time I have a couple minutes and I open up Instagram, there, there's something new from you. And, and it's always fire. It's always good. I'm always liking it. And I'm, you know, I don't always comment because I don't have time, but I at least give it a like because I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You can't comment on 60 memes, Ghost? Come on. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get stuck into it. All right. So Ed- Edward Kelly, commonly known as Ned, was Australia's answer to Billy Kid and Robin Hood. He's a very real person, both Australian folklore and history, that stood up for the common man against the corrupt police force and the monarchy-based system of its time. He was a bushranger, an outlaw, a gang leader, and a convicted police murderer. One of the last bushrangers in Australian history and is well known for wearing a suit of bulletproof armor during his final shootout with police. Those are the pictures you sent me, correct? Yeah, yeah. So what he did was he he fashioned himself a means of defense against uh, a staggeringly high number of police that were after him and his gang, which has never been replicated since. It's um I think that the the Back to the Future film kind of ripped it off where Michael J. Fox puts a sheet of metal underneath and gets shot in the chest. And it's like that bulletproof vest. Yes, yes, because Ned Kelly, Ned Kelly started that whole thing off. When uh, when you sent the pictures, I'm going to see if I can bring them up here. Um, awesome. It it that's what it exactly kind of reminded me of. I'm like, man, this dude basically just took um, metal, something that you would see out of like a, oh like a Mad Max type of film, and or. Uh, night armor basically and that that's that's what he wore and i was i'm sitting here looking at the pictures i was like man that's that's pretty pretty freaking neat he was like the 19th century iron man he built himself this suit of armor and it absolutely worked it worked until the police changed their strategy but yeah there it is yeah so he's got his plate armor mostly around the shoulders head body and over the crutch um, that's his that's his personal armor there, and there's also the armor of his gang as well. So it wasn't just himself. He tried to protect his all the men that were in his group as well. Okay. Now, is this a bust of Ned Kelly? 
That's his death mask. So upon oh. hanging him, they made a cast of his head, which is on display to this very day. I forgot that they, uh, yeah, the whole death mask thing was a thing for a while. Wow. You can almost see where the rope was underneath his neck. Almost. And look how he has a very harsh face, very aged, very weathered. Mm-hmm. I'll let you guess how old he was when he died. By looking at that, I would have said uh, he looks like someone nowadays that would probably be 40s or 50s, but I'm going to guess on a different aspect, he was probably 25. Bang, he was 25. Damn. Exactly. Look at that yeah, guess. Nailed it. But look at look at the harsh realities of life in those days to look like that. And yeah. now people today look like they're 18 all the way into their 30s. Yeah. And I think, is this the armor for his gang then? That's his gang's army, yeah. Okay. Dude, it's so primitive, but it it worked. It really did work. <laughs> Absolutely, it did. All right. So, Ed, um, Edward Kelly was born on December 1854 in the then British colony of Victoria, which is my home state. He, has a third, he was a third of eight children born to Irish parents, his mother an immigrant, and his father who was transported to Australia as a convict. Did you say 1954? Or 1854. Eight, oh, 1854. I'm like, man, this is more recent than I thought. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. So 1854. So it's in the 19th century. Um, life was very rough for Ned growing up. At the age of 12, he quickly had to become the man of the house when his father died while serving an additional six-month prison sentence later on in life. So it's not just the mid-19th century. Like we think of the rest of the world. The world's developed. The world's booming at that time. But in Australia, it was still a frontier land. Okay. It was wild, untamed, dangerous, and with a new world of full variety of unfamiliar flora and fauna for its new settlers. Thick, dense hardwood forests were inhabited by First Nations people who competed with early settlers for game, foraging land, freshwater, and territory. Frontier wars and skirmishes between these tribes were a very real threat to colonists, but it wasn't the only concern. The biggest concern for people like Ned Kelly and his family of the day and the biggest threat to their safety and livelihood was the squatocracy, which is especially for those who are considered poor selector families. Now, I have to define what those two words are. Okay. Selectors essentially were just British citizens who were either descended from convicts or were poor people that arrived who claimed a portion of land. And the okay. Crown would give it to them as long as they developed it, turned it into a farm or something like that. As a poor selector family... The, they had the pick of the worst land available. So it was either very dense in bush and scrub. Um, soil content wasn't the best. So they didn't really have the best land to choose from. Um, whereas the squatocracy, they were European settlers who arrived. And it's kind of a play on the word aristocracy where their usage came from they would steal other people's land. And so the people who were in the squatoc- squatocracy had the most land, the most developed land, and often they'd just take it from people who already possessed it. Kind of like a modern-day so, squatter. Yeah, like a modern-day squatter. That's where it came from. Um, but they, they held, because they held that land, they had a lot of political pull and, and, and power within the government at the time. So at this time, they became the aristocracy of Australia, particularly Victoria. And in these colonies, they wielded so much power, they could influence the police force at the time, mm. um, which... Victorian police at that time were considered to be very corrupt <laughs> and not a lot has changed since then, unfortunately. <laughs> Old habits die hard with that lot. Yeah. Now, so on many, on many occasions, the police would often intervene on the, on the squatocracy's behalf and kick people off their land 
or if they were notified of um, people being harassed by these groups, that they would actively ignore it. Okay. Now, with your... Do you guys call them indigenous or aboriginal? Uh, both. Both. Okay, so with, with them fighting with the aboriginals, does that still go on today as much? Because um, I, I don't know. The little that I know of the aboriginal tribes, you don't really... Like, they have their land, and you, you just don't go there. Is that, is that true? Essentially. Um, over Nearly 50% of Australia is considered Indigenous land, which isn't spoken about too often. A lot of Australians don't even know about. Okay. So it's a, almost a 50-50 split between Crown land, Indigenous land, and people's own personal property. But uh, the biggest disputes now are more political. There's no active... <laughs> fighting going on. Right. Those last kind of battles happened in the, at the start of the um, the 20th century, the last few little conflicts, but now it's all politically driven. There's a lot of Indigenous people in Parliament and in our governments that are advocating for Indigenous rights, so it's more along those lenses. Okay. Now, the other question I have, and I'm only basing this off American history, the Native Americans helped us in some of our wars. Did they? Did your Indigenous people ever help, like Ned Kelly's front or or anything like that to um, fight it, off it's not, the authority it's not it's not proven but being of, of the low socioeconomic spectrum in australia at the time being both irish and descended from a, a convict and having a a criminal background he was forced to kind of go out into the bush and make connections with local mobs and tribes and he did have some local um some local indigenous tribes or clans that assisted him um just more moving around and getting through the bush without being detected but there wasn't anything officially with say like what you would see in the states where you had the french and indian wars or anything like that it was more of a an assistance show you around type of a deal okay which could be can be a great help in in and of itself you know here you have safe passage go through you know here's the safe Mm -hmm. way through we're not going to take up arms you know, now our Native Americans and First Nations people did take up arms, thankfully. And then, obviously, we know how history turned out, and we turned around and fucked them. But that's every government in the world. Exactly. So unfortunately, the same thing happened to the indigenous here. There were uh, there were those those border conflicts and small skirmishes, but the scale of the uh, American Indian Wars wasn't quite there with Australia. Okay. Um, a, a large majority of the indigenous Australians were wiped out either purposefully by the governments of the time or disease ended up killing a lot of few, quite a few off. Kind of like the smallpox blankets. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the common cold is very deadly for Indigenous people. Their immune okay. systems just aren't at the same scale as Westerners. Huh. That's, that's interesting. Very interesting. All right. So the Cowley family, a poor Irish migrant family from convict stock, had very low social standing in this colony leaving them to, with a relatively small and less, stale, less than stellar landholding for farm production. Living in a dangerous new world, the lower socioeconomic family sphere, the Ned Kelly quickly turned to his life of crime in order to feed his family and survive. As a teenager, Kelly was arrested for associating with a known bushranger, an Irishman called Harry Power, and served two prison terms for a variety of offences. It has been speculated that Callie's mother was in a romantic or a reciprocal relationship with Harry Power and that Ned was essentially sold off as a form of child labour. However, this has never been conclusively proven. So he started to build that that early life of being an outlaw in his teens just as a means to, pro- 
protect and feed his family at the time. Mm. Which I think you and I would probably do the same thing. Well, I think everyone would do it. All <laughs> half of the convicts that came to Australia were done for stealing bread or food. So yeah. that's just adapting to a new place, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, And, and I love medieval films and, and stuff like that. They always put that in there. You know, you see the poor kid, you know, stealing a loaf of bread and what have you. It, but they put it in there for a reason because it was that common. Absolutely it was. And particularly Australia. Australia had, it was still wild. A lot of the bush hadn't been felled yet. So farming was still very small scale. And the type of animals we have in Australia, they are high in protein. So if you were to just live off the mammals that are around in Australia, a lot of Westerners ended up getting what's akin to rabbit starvation. Okay. You can eat and eat and eat and eat, but all you're getting is straight protein. So you don't have the fats and the minerals and everything else that you need as well, Um, which the indigenous people, they knew a way around that. They had foraging techniques for local vegetables and fruits and things and seafood, whereas the Westerners were still very meat and bread orientated. So a lot of starvation occurred early on. That's uh, that that is actually a big problem when people think that they can like leave the lower low, uh, lower forty eight and move up to Alaska, and the Inuits, you know, they're out there now. They're allowed to, but you know, they hunt seal and this and and what have you, and they they make sure they're eating that that blubber, that whale blubber, that fat, and other people, you know, people down here be like, why are you eat, consuming just fat? That's cholesterol and this that. Your body needs that, you know, and, and now you, you see this big push for, oh, high protein diet. That's that that's the way. And it's like, no, I mean, you can cut carbs out, but you still need some of these fats to balance out the protein. Yeah, you need it for your brain chemistry yeah. as well. Like if you don't if you don't have any of that fat working your way through your system, you're going to be on on four cylinders when you're running a VA. It's Yeah, big time. Um just on a side note, and this is just highly ironic. Someone just requested to send a message to me, okay? Why why we're sitting here recording live. And I accepted it, and the message was a link to AP News. Australian police used taser on 95-year-old with dementia who held a steak knife. Yes, this was in New South Wales, so (laughs) stayed above me, but police in this country have... Going through some very questionable changes within the psyche of the people at the moment. So this elderly lady held up a steak knife. She's full-blown dementia, small, frail. And instead of trying to disarm her or restrain her, they thought the best course of action was to hit her with a taser. And now she's in critical care. She could die. Wow. And the police are refusing to release the body cam footage. Oh, of course. You know, it's... (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) I, I just was baffled at that i'm like i'm sitting here talking with drew from australia and someone sends me an australian link about this and you're like yeah it just happened blah 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 blah. i'm like wow yeah it's very serendipitous of what the place are like in the ned kelly story as well all right all right so the big turning point for ned was um he had this growing distrust of police because of his time served as a teenager and and that time working with a known outlaw that he hated the system, he hated the police, and eventually came to a head in 1871 when Ned discovered a horse. He found a a horse out in the scrub, out in the bush, all by itself, um, no markings, anything on it to show ownership. And Ned, being Ned, thought, oh, this is awesome. I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, literally. And he mounted it, and he rode it straight on into town. 
unfortunately, this was the end for Ned. Um, it proved to be a really terrible choice that a young man who'd already rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, was known by police, had criminal charges, um, the squatocracy had it out for him, and so did the constabulary. He was arrested for suspicion of theft and was later charged and found guilty of receiving a stolen horse. And he then served a prison term of three years from 1871 to 1874. Mm. For a horse. For a horse. Something that didn't show ownership. He tried to explain supposedly that I just found it and if it's someone's, they can take it back. But they really drilled at home to put him away again. Wow. Things never change. No, definitely not. Take take that horse and it could be a car these days or not even a car, a bicycle that's probably been sitting somewhere with rust on it. You name it. No one's ridden it. You find it just stashed. Okay, I'm going to ride it. Cool. It's it's all, you know, squeaking and what have you. No different than this horse. And, oh, you're going to get arrested and, you know, but we have it out for you. That's why. Yeah, it's it's the same as, like, Buying a car from someone cash in hand and then finding out it's a stolen vehicle. Ooh. You're the one that gets in trouble, not the guy you bought it from. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Dicks. Exactly. So after this top, the next stint in prison, he made some connections with a couple of uh, scrupulous characters. And he later became a member of the Gretig Mob, which was a group of bushrangers and larrikins known for cattle theft. So they would go around, steal cattle from people's ranches and sell them off. What's a larrikin? A larrikin is an Australian vernacular for, like, uh, a funny bloke, um, a good mate, someone who is a bit of a roustabout. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, this group quickly crossed paths with the police force, though, at the Callie's home itself. So, in 1878, violence broke out at the homestead. Um, Ned was being indicted for attempting to murder a police officer of the Crown, and Ned's mother was in risk, arrested and imprisoned for her parts in the events, but Ned managed to get away. Mm. So the police rocked up, found where the gang was. There was a bit of a scuffle. Ned was going to be arrested. He bolted into the bush and his mum was the scapegoat for it all. So Ned fled into the bush, vowing that one day he would get vengeance for his mother's arrest. And the tensions led to his younger brother, Dan, and two associates, Joe Byron and Steve Hart, to shoot dead three policemen. And as a result, the government proclaimed them all outlaws. And that's where the Ned, Galley, Ned Kelly gang started. Okay. So his, his brother took it upon himself to get revenge with his mates. They killed some cops. And that's when the manhunt started. They were officially proclaimed outlaws, kind of like a Robin Hood. Yeah. The state yeah. named who they were. You're, you're villains. You're evil people. And we're coming for you. You're, you hit it right on the head when, when you said uh, Billy the Kid type of character. Because his story isn't too far off of what Billy the Kid's story was. You know what I mean? Everybody knows Billy the Kid for uh, being a fast gunslinger and this and that and, you know, kind of a, a wise ass, you know, a, a provocateur, I guess you could say, you know, edging people on for a fight. But I, if, I do believe his crimes essentially were something to do with cattle and he ended up hooking up with th- this farmer and what have you. And then long story short, he was protecting his friends, ended up killing an officer or whatever. And that's what it eventually led to him being this big criminal because he was protecting his friend from corrupt police officers. Yeah. My understanding is that Billy was almost a part of like a, a small outfit used to protect uh, a farmer's holdings, his land yes. from a, a, 
a competing farm next door, which kind of sounds a lot like the squadocracy. Yes. Um, trying to take land from other people. So it's the same kind of a deal here. It's average person standing up, using their morals against what's wrong and what's right, standing for what's right and going against what's wrong. And and for the listeners, if, if you're if you're not familiar, it's not a historically accurate film, but if you kind of want that that story of Billy the Kid told, watch Young Guns and Young Guns Two. Um, it, it, that's kind of the basis of Billy the Kid and a couple of the others' uh, stories. So it's an older movie. It came, came out in the late '80s, early '90s, but still good. Very good. And it actually proves that John Bon Jovi can time travel. Yes, it does. Because he was shot down in a blaze of glory. <laughs> uh, oh, great shit. movie. Very it, good yes, movie. Yes, very Lou good. Lou Diamond Phillips is in that as well. Very yes. Good. All right, so the new formed Cali gang evaded Victoria police for over two years. And I'll put this into context for you. Victoria itself is one of our small states in Australia. Okay. But it's bigger than multiple European countries. You can fit a whole heap of European countries into Victoria itself. Most of it is still bushland today. So at that point, it was majority um, tall wood ash, um, tall eucalyptus gum, redwood gum forest. Very dense, very easy to hide out in. So they spent two years evading the police. They couldn't catch them. So this was support. This was achieved through the support of a following that he'd gathered from the lower class and sympathisers within Australia. So the poverty-stricken... Um, the larrikins of the world, the the Irish, the convicts, they all looked up to Ned Kelly as someone who's kind of fighting for, for their their place in society. And he, he at that time, he was starting to be considered as a modern-day Robin Hood for his time. Okay. Um, so the major events undertaken by the gang were raids at Uriand and Geraldry. Um, essentially, it was a bank robbery, a couple of bank robberies and a stagecoach theft. Um, they were responsible for killing Aaron Sherritt, who was a sympathiser turned police informant, who was actually killed while under police protection. So oh. all this time they're evading police, not being caught, committing bank robberies, stealing things. They found out that one of their supporters was giving information to the police and tipping them off. And instead of just leaving it, they actively found where he was being held by the police and topped him. Ooh. Talk about sending a it. fucking message. He walked out for a piss at night, and they shot him in the dark. Nice. <laughs> Snitches get stitches. They definitely do. So it was this time where he's gathering this following within the colonies, and there's a bit of unrest going on amongst the low socioeconomic groups that Ned decides to send a manifesto. He sent a 40-page manifesto denouncing police, the government, and the British Empire. He set down his own account of the events that led up to his outlawry, and demanded justice for his family and the rural poor, he threatened dire consequences against those who defied him. And here's just a few major talking points from his 40-page manifesto. Two little paragraphs. All right. As it, as it only aids the police to procure false witnesses to lag innocent men, I would advise them to subscribe to a sum and give it to the poor of their district, as no man could steal their horse or cattle without knowledge of the poor, and they would rise as one man and find it was on the farce of the earth. The police can't protect you. All those that have reason to fear me and better sell out and give £10 out to every hundred to the widow and orphan fund, and do not attempt to reside in Victoria, but as short as the time as possible after reading this notice." Neglect this and abide by the consequences which shall be worse than the rust in wheat in Victoria or the drought of the dry season in the grasshoppers of New South Wales. 
I do not wish to give order full force without giving timely warning, but I am a widow's son, an outlawed man, and my orders must be obeyed. Mm. Very well said. So he said it straight. He Now there's some alternative historians who are trying to claim today through their research that Ned was actively trying to create an uprising amongst the poorer classes and that he was actively going out with his gang, recruiting an army. This hasn't been proven, um, but there are indications that those types of things were going on. Which, if I was him, I think I would be doing that. Absolutely. After a life of being downtrodden and persecuted and targeted, seems like a thing with so much corruption going on at the time. Yeah. All right, so the Crown at this point, in response to his manifesto, stepped up their pursuit of the Cali gang, bringing in a decorated officer from the, cal- from the colony of South Africa to bring him in, Superintendent Francis Hare. This proved to be the man who would outwit and outthink Ned Kelly, but not to a lot of challenge and pushback from the Cali gang. Hmm. So you think about this, a small colony on the other side of the world means nothing the Crown has to actively invest in one of their best police officers from across the Commonwealth to catch an outlaw. So there must have been a lot going on beyond the odd stagecoach robbery going on in the state that they, I think are really trying to quash a rebellion. Never mind. I lost my. I lost my question. I, I had <laughs> no it right, worries. right, right there. I was because if, if you've got mind. it, jump in. Yeah. In eighteen eighty, the state drove the gang into the bush by occupying townships, farmsteads, and pressing his sympathisers for information. Oh. Ned knew that large number of officers and their rifles would quickly outnumber and outgun the gang if found. This is when he put his famous plan into action. So I remember remembered what I was going to ask. So this cop, he wasn't from Victoria. No, he was a. British national air quotes who was born in from South Africa and was their major and superintendent for putting down uprisings amongst the African tribes. Okay. So they kind of, now did they bring him in or he was already there? They brought him in. They actually shipped him out. Wow. So that's a long time back then to go via boat. So they must've seen the writing on the wall, what could potentially happen if the Cali gang wasn't put down. Yeah. Cause you you have to think, uh, God, you got to send a letter. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that, that travels by horse and boat and finally gets to him. Then he has to reply. And, you know, so we're talking months and months and months before anything. I think, think about how long the, the governor of Victoria sat on it, because you wouldn't want to look incompetent to the rest of the empire. Right. That this Irish thug was going around stealing and robbing. It's actually have to actually have to ask for help from the crown. That would have been a big step in those days. So that he probably sat on that for months on end. Wow. That's crazy. Okay, so here's how his awesome plan came into action. In 1880, so they they drove him into the bushlands. He was hiding. He couldn't rely on his sympathizers, couldn't go into the towns because they're currently being occupied by an army of the police, right? Mm -hmm. Within the confines of the Victorian bushland, the gang pieced together a makeshift forge and began the process of building the gang's now famous armor. It was fashioned from stolen plow moldboard and developed, and, and they developed this protective armor against the rounds of the police that were now chasing them. So they figured there's going to be that many guns, there's going to be that many bullets flying at us, we need to protect ourselves. And they had the ability to think of something to protect themselves. So they, they, they may have been low education, lowbrow guys, but they had the smarts to give themselves some kind of body armor. Yeah. And you said these came from like plows, right? Yeah, from so, plow boards. Yeah, so that's that's thick steel, or yeah, steel. Uh, 
to begin with, and then they're going to kind of heat it up and forge it into what they need. That's some thick armor. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to wear it, uh, just due to the weight. Um, and was this like summertime or wintertime for you guys when, when all this was kind of occurring? Uh, I believe it was wintertime. So okay. at, at the best of times, the Australian bush is cold, wet, and damp in Victoria, especially. So we're so far south. So they're cutting down hardwood red gum trees, which are notorious for breaking saws, breaking axes. They were cutting this wood up to fire the furnace. Wow. To, to bend and shape this metal, which is ironic because red gum is some of the hot, hottest burning firewood in the world. So they were in the best position to be out in the middle of nowhere doing this. Jeez. <laughs> and never underestimate, uh, never underestimate someone with uh, a very strong will to, to carry out a deed. And they're back against a wall. Yeah. So he had to try and even the odds through this. Even with the new armor, they were outnumbered and wouldn't last long. Ned's plan was to derail a train carrying dozens of officers on their way to ambush the gang. So what he did was... He'd taken some hostages at a hotel at the time and he went out, he derailed the tracks within the bush where it wouldn't be seen in the hopes it would derail the train and kill a whole heap of the police that were after him. Unfortunately, it's suspected that one of his hostages got away and was able to flag down the train in time, in which case they got out, they put the train, the tracks back on and the train kept moving. So that part of the, the plan failed. Damn. On its face, it would have worked perfectly, it would have taken out a whole heap of the police and he may have had a better chance. So that plan failed. The derailment um, was noticed to the police and ended up with the police engaging in a final shootout with the gang at the Glen Rowan Inn. The gang took two drunken hostages from the hotel as a means of negotiation. They surrounded the hotel in the dead of night and during a rainstorm, the gang adorned in their armor began to fire upon the police. Mm. So we're talking the 1800s. Did you guys have rifles then? Like we did, or- we we didn't have the lever actions. Um, even the pistols, they were cock fire, cock fire, cock okay. fire. It wasn't a cylinder based um pistol like you guys had. So they would go out, they'd cock fire, cock fire, cock fire, and then go back in and reload. Okay. Um. So they, they were completely surrounded. The police had rifles, pistols. They were opening fire, shooting through the windows. This went on for quite some time. Um. But this is when their plan came into action. They realized that they were surrounded. They had to put the armor on. They donned their armor. They turned the lamps off on the hotel, making it pitch black. They would step out into the dark. Someone inside would turn the lanterns back on to show them in their armor. They'd freak the shit out of the police <laughs> who were watching them. They'd let the police shoot at them. They stood there staunchly waiting for the police to shoot. It would ricochet, bounce off them. They might get hit in the arms or the waist where it wasn't armoured. They'd get hit, they'd stand there, take it, then raise their pistols and start popping and taking out police. Mother, people, don't underestimate the fucking Irish, okay? (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. They're crazy. So there's uh, there's an account from one of the personal diaries of one of the police officers, and there's supposedly a thunderstorm at the time where he said with every flash you could see the demons in their armour ready to shoot us one by one. Ooh. And as soon as they ran out of armour, the lights would go off, they'd go back inside, reload, and they'd come out for another round, come out for another round. Even even though the bullets are hitting that metal, that still has to hurt. Like, you're still, I mean, you're still feeling that impact. And, and to sit there and take it, like you said, in a hip or in an arm and just, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, talk about 
putting some mental fear in, in, into your opponent. Absolutely. And these are, and the police at that time, they were generally well-educated upper crust English settlers who became police for the social status of things. And they were very um, wary of superstitions and indigenous folklore and, these guys would have absolutely scared the crap out of them by seeing what they were doing. Nice, nice. So the police were taken back by this display and began to waver and becoming disenchanted in the shootout. All until one officer pointed out the pointed out the weakness in the armor, the seams around the legs, elbows, hands, and waist. The police began to target these areas, and one by one, each of the men began to fail, and they were dragged back inside to the inn. Later, the police would end the whole stalemate, the whole shootout, by setting fire to the building with all occupants inside, including the hostages. Ooh, not so a fun this way is to like go. Ancient Waco, yeah. set fire to the building and deal with it that way. Now, Callie was the only survivor and was severely wounded by the police fire when he was captured. Despite thousands of supporters attending rallies and signing a petition for his reprieve, Callie was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging, which was carried out at the old Melbourne jail. Damn. So this this whole escapade, it didn't last many, many years, but it when it did finally happen, I mean, it went quick. It did, and it had, it's had such a long, ongoing social impact in the Victorian psyche and the Australian um, cultural framework. He's someone that's not going to be forgotten anytime soon. Gotcha. So when you say that, like, how, how do... Victorians and, and Australians view him today. Like, is he like a, like a William Wallace type hero or just very a- much so? It's it's a split. So you've got a lot of the the working class blue collar Australians who identify with Ned because he had that ability to stand up against the establishment and fight for what was right and mm-hmm. for his family. And then you've got the other side of things where Victoria Police, even to this day, still lay out a wreath for the officers that were killed. And they still proclaim Ned Kelly to be a police murderer and not something that people should um, look towards with reverie or with some kind of notoriety. They don't think that's a good idea. Oh, of course not. You're, you're going against the establishment. Exactly. You gotta- so here's he, he's one of the most important things about Ned Kelly, and a lot of young guys get this tattooed on themselves in Australia. There are the young tradies and bogans out there. Before Ned died, his final words were, such is life. Yo, I've heard that, such is life. Yep. Like, even here um, in America. Yeah, so it's a very poetic standing and statement from a man who fought his entire life of 25 years. What a crazy concept to think the guy so young could have put that amount of effort into standing up for what was right and such is life um a lot of young guys get this tattooed across their chest or their abs or across their arms it's a statement that is um built into our psyche as a nation so where do you have it tattooed i don't have it tattooed i'm <laughs> clean skin <laughs> yeah uh so is that because i've heard that even even when i was a kid you know certain people you know oh, such is life you know this and that is he the originator of it or who? who? I, I'm not sure, but that's the statement he ended his life with. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was maybe from a, a older Victorian era type of um, statement, but that's how he ended his life. Such is life. Yeah. Cause here in America, obviously we're a melting pot and you know, the Ellis Island and all that 
you know, immigrants used to come through. Obviously, we had Australians, you know, everybody from around the world. We still do. I mean, now it's more different. They like they like that southern border, but obviously, folklore from every nationality. And and I'm not saying this is folklore, but you know, you know, stories passed down from generations still make it into common common language or common stories or try to you know relate it to something here you know what i mean which is which is neat because until you said that i was like man i i didn't know that was like a ned kelly last words you know such is life you know it's kind of like it is what it is you know but this is what i love about ned kelly is that he represented the last of the wild untamed frontier of australia it was quickly becoming a highly organized and educated society the uneducated were being locked up put in prison pushed out and he was the last person pushing back against this and unfortunately a lot of australians identified ned kelly and and support the things he did as being morally right but in the past three years we definitely didn't see that within victoria or australia we saw our people kowtow to the establishment and i think the spirit of ned kelly and the spirit of what he stood for has died for a lot of australians Mm -hmm. um i don't know if we're going to get that back but there is a bit of a resurgence with with him and a lot of the freedom parties and a lot of the truth community. So, who knows? It's it's something that's still within our our collective mindset as Victorians. Yeah, and it, it needs to be because the whole world watched what happened during the last three four years in Australia, and we were just shaking our heads like, "Holy shit!" You know, how can they let the their government do that to them? But when you look at how things are in Australia, your hands are tied, unfortunately. And that's why the rest of the world screams at the United States, do not give up your guns. Do not give up your guns. You, you guys are the last dance for what, what freedom is supposed to be represented, and we're losing that quicker than shit here. Yeah, you've got to dig your heels in and don't let what happened to us happen to you. Yeah. All right, I've got a few little conspiracy theory side of things oh about nice Ned kelly now i like so that. this is where the folklore starts to come into it some karma right here so sir redmond barry which who was the judge who presided over the case and sentenced ned to death he actually died 12 days after ned's hanging he died of a carbuncle on his neck which is like a pus filled wound yeah like a like a big pimple that popped and he died of all things, 12 days after the hanging. So people say in the community that this was Ned's revenge against him and he was coming back from the dead to kill him. Whether it's just coincidence or not, it's definitely some karma that that guy died 12 days after sentencing Ned to death. That's awesome. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) And this is where the folklore comes into it. There's a really, really interesting theory about Ned and when that he wasn't actually arrested and it wasn't Ned that was hung at the jail. The theory supposes that it was his brother, Dan, who took his place, allowing Ned to escape into the bushland during the shootout. Officially, Dan and Steve Hart died when the police set fire to the hotel uh, where they were sheltering, and the two charred bodies were found later. Now, the theory is that Dan took one of the hostages, Mm -hmm. put him inside the armour, and lent him up against the wall, allowing Ned to escape, and he put Ned's armour on. Okay. And he took Ned's place. Um, there's some slight evidence for this. There's stories of Ned being seen and wrote about by the, by the people in the aristocracy at the time and people in diaries. 
And in the 90s, there was an old photo that came out that supposedly depicts Ned Kelly alive and well 10 years after the fact. Interesting. Which which sold for, I think it was 70,000 pounds at the time, but can't be found anymore. Huh. If I would have... Because I I always go into interviews blind because I want to learn as we're going along. If I would have known a lot of this, I think, and we can always do a part two to some of this and compare the lives of Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly because there's there's some of that folklore with Billy the Kid that he he wasn't shot and killed at at that uh, that ranch or wherever he was staying and he he did escape and it's just kind of it's it's weird how similar the stories are now granted billy the kid wasn't wearing all this armor or what have you but you know he was considered an outlaw but he he was fighting for what he perceived as good you know what i mean and and in all accounts i i think he was fighting for good and same with ned kelly yeah and um particularly in australia we have a we have an affinity for the underdog we always go for the little Aussie battler, as we call them, the person that's defying surmountable odds and, and putting in the good fight. So we identify with those people. And I think it's the same way for Billy and Billy and the Kid that mm-hmm. he was one of, he was just the average guy trying to do his best. And I think you see a lot of these stories happen across multiple cultures. And it's probably for good reason. It's either we're all being oppressed by the same people or the moral stance and Good people just try to fight back. Yeah. And I think I, I'm i not encouraging violence, anybody, and neither is Drew. But I think we need to have some more of these Ned Kellys or Billy the Kid type people stand up and, you know, take take your country back. I mean, hell, we saw France, France, of all people, known to be, sorry, French people, kind of lazy. Uh out rioting, uh, going to BlackRock's headquarters and, and you know, over their, their raise of uh, the retirement age, if, if that's what we're truly, you know, if that's what it truly was. You know, the French are doing it up in England during the last four years, protests constantly up there. And, and a lot of them never got any type of traction. I'm sure down in Australia there was protests that never got any coverage or nobody even heard about it. Yeah, um, you know how the media are today. A few hundred protesters, and then you get the videos from people's phones, and it's easily 100,000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, it's it's something that we need to keep in our, in our collective culture across the West, that we need to have that rebellious spirit, or we're going to go back to a like a, a medieval serfdom, except it'll be a technocracy. We'll be the, the poor people working in the factories and building the things that they want for the elites. And we'll go to our little tiny pods and they'll be living high off the hog. Mm-hmm. If we don't have that rebellious nature, history will repeat itself. Yeah. And our pods will be visors over our head while we live in the AI. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. We'll probably be working in a virtual reality somehow. Yeah. Not living. The last, with- little thing about- oh, go ahead. The last little thing about Ned Kelly is that he wasn't always a criminal. Um, as a child, he actually saved another boy from drowning, and this boy belonged to a, a somewhat upper-class English family. Okay. Uh, and th- this family awarded him with a gold and green sash, 
um, which Ned reportedly was wearing the night that he was shot and captured. He had that sash tied around his waist as evidence of his bravery and that he was a good person. So much so that the national colours for the Australian teams in sports are gold and yellow. A golden um green, sorry. Oh, nice. So that's carried on as well. That's awesome. It's our national sporting colours for everything we do. So we, we've taken that on board as well as a country, whereas you'd look at our flag, red, blue, and white, you'd think it'd be something like that, but gold and green based off a lot of Ned Kelly. Huh. I've got some homework for you, though. Okay. All right? You're a big film buff. Go back and watch the 2003 Ned Kelly film starring oh, Heath I, Ledger. I was just going to Bloom, Jeffrey Rush, Naomi Watts. And Joel Edgerton. Okay, so it is just called Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly. Because I was going to ask you that earlier. Did they ever make a movie out of his his story? And there's there's been a recent one in the last couple of years. Um, I think that the Heath Ledger one is more romantically accurate to the type of person I believe he was. Okay. Um, the latest one that's come out puts him in the light of being a drunkard and. They have him dancing around in women's clothing and all sorts of weird oh, shit. It's, um, absolutely. You know, you got you to push that movement. It's, it's really woke. But that film, actually, the newer one does point out that he was trying to raise an army at the same time, which the, the Heath Ledger one doesn't. So there's elements of truth in it sprinkled amongst PC crap in the latest one. Okay. But give the uh, 2003 film a go. Fantastic film. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to have to find a platform that it's on because... I'm going to watch it just because it has Heath Ledger in it. He's one of my favorite actors. You know, God, God yeah, rest he his soul. Na- he absolutely nailed it. Orlando Bloom actually plays the the friend who um, one of his one of his mates, not his brother. And then there's Joel Edgerton, I believe, plays the role of the friend who betrays them to the police. Okay, and gets shot in the dark. Now, is- fantastic film, great period piece. If you're an American and want to know what Australia was like at that time. It nails the period perfectly. Oh, nice. Now, is is Orlando Bloom an Aussie as well? Uh, British. British, okay. I, I, I knew Heath was, but wasn't sure about him. I liked Orlando Bloom in uh, Lord of the Rings. They, they, favorite character, I think, out of that whole movie. Yeah, I think he jumped on board for the Ned Kelly film because he was living in New Zealand and Australia um, periodically during the Lord of the Rings films, and he really liked it here, and he, and he decided to join the film. Nice. So what else, what else do we have? Uh, I mean, we have we have. I set aside a, a decent amount. I mean, if you want to wrap, we can. I can put this out as a bonus. It's up to you. Up to you, man. Let's keep going. What we can do is um, we can always just cut it and then um, have the, another half as something else as a bonus. Have the Ned Kelly one part, and then us talking about something else. Up to you. Yeah, yeah. Let's, we can do that. Whatever you want to talk about. Awesome. All right. What's going on in statewide with you guys? <laughs> What's <laughs> what isn't uh oh, shit statewide what, what have i been seeing over the weekend a lot of joe biden shit obviously with him visiting uh japan got the motherfucker almost fell down steps again then they show him wandering around like like he, he has no no clue and then this uh durham report comes out and in there i guess the fbi said he wasn't mentally fit to know that he was conducting wrong businesses with foreign agencies while in a position of power, but yet he's mentally fit to run the country. So how, how does that make sense? 
He's not mentally fit to hold a bank card or a driver's license. No. Alone. Have finger on the button. Jesus Christ. No. He, he can barely even hold a fucking ice cream cone. Hey, but it's chocolate, chocolate chip. Chocolate, chocolate chip. That is true. I don't know. It, there, there's just so much that hits us. And obviously you listen and, and we try to cover the what we think is important on, on the conspiracy underground with, you know, Ryan and I and, and what we can find for the weekly news news show. But a lot of it is just, it's like repeat. It's just, okay. It's the same thing that was played out. Pick your president before that, just different players now. And it, it's just all fear porn, fear, propaganda, keep people scared. Oh my God, this is going to happen. Trump's going to jail. Oh my God. No, he's not. Oh, Biden crime family. They're going down. No, no, they won't. No, nothing is ever going to fucking happen to these fucks. This is the problem with the two week news cycle. It desensitizes us to what's actually going on because then they repeat that same news cycle, a presidency later or a few months later or what have you. Whereas if it was real integrity, if the news had real integrity, they'd push that story every single hour of every single day until something actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. And the media doesn't do that anymore. Nope. Nope. You saw for my memory. Okay. I didn't really pay attention to Clinton's presidency. I was in high school and then off into to the air force or whatever, but didn't really care then. But when you see Bush uh, with 9-11 and all that come into play, and you watch the news coverage then and how they were showing body counts, body counts, body counts. Then Obama came in. Oh, all that stopped. Then Trump comes in. Oh, my God. We're going to bash him, bash him, bash him like we did, did Bush. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. Body count, body count, body count, body count, body count. Biden comes in. Oh, everybody get your, your pokey poke because uh, Biden said it, it's okay, even though it was Trump's shot and y'all said it was it was bad. Like, what the fuck? Like, people, I, I don't like left or right, but how dumb do people need to be that they can't see that that's what's going on? Like, hello? It's team, team sports analogy. It just fits people perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, and you could agree with someone 98% of the time, and if they give you 2% of something from another party oh you're you're a democrat or you're a republican because you believe in this yeah no i can have two states of mind in my head at the same time (laughs) exactly you know i'm I'm a free thinking individual and i don't know it's it's nuts it it gets it gets old sometimes you know what i mean like i got out of like like q and i've said this many times q really burned me and duped me because to me, and, and I know there's other vets out there that still buy into it and, and are like full gung-ho on it. And it's like, dude, look at how you're being duped. They're playing into your military psyche like that because they know how you were programmed. And I fell for it for a while and, and you know, you, you still see it. And it's like, come on, people. It, it screams that it's like the feds creating a farm to try and create shooters. Yeah. Because the last thing um, that they need to push gun control in America, I think, is to have a whole heap of vets armed to the teeth going out and gunning down a bunch of innocent people. And if you can have the feds that are manipulating people to do that, I think that's all they need for gun control in the States. It's going to be hard for them, and it'd probably be feds having shootouts with people in their houses or on their property, but 
I think that's the way it's, it's going, especially when a thing like Hugh gets weaponized. Yeah. It, it'll be another uncivil war, basically. Yeah. Very and, much so. you know, it, that's been in the, the, the shadows for years, just, you know, looming. Oh, the next civil war, the next civil war in America. You know, what's it going to be? Is this going to push the Patriots over the, the, the line? They're constantly trying to do that. They did it with J6. It, it, it's come out that the feds were infiltrated in almost every aspect of, of that whole thing that went down. And you have the what was he, the sergeant of arms in, in Congress or whatever, shoot Ashley Babbitt and nothing happened to him? Like, he just, eh, I'm just going to shoot you. Like, how is that? Like, A, those buildings belong to the American people. They're, they're, they're public places. They're not private places. They belong to the people of America. And they try to make it sound like, oh, they're trespassing, da-da-da-da-da. No, motherfuckers, when you guys aren't governing properly... You're trespassing. It's called treason. Speaking of your friend Biden, I saw a news article recently that uh, today, this is from Biden's own Twitter. Today, uh, by signing a new joint initiative to accelerate the transition of clean energy, the United States and Australia will take one giant step forward in our fight against climate change. Now, Australia only has one nuclear reactor, which is being decommissioned in the next five years. Everything else is coal, and coal is seen as bad and dirty, and we're shutting them down at an alarming rate. And I've got a a source that's inside the power industry at a high level, and they've been having crisis meetings with the government trying to tell them that what they're doing is going to put Australia in an energy deficit that over the next three years, starting this year, because they're shutting down these, these coal-fired power stations and replacing them with solar or wind that doesn't actually have the capacity that coal did we're going to be in a deficit of like 30 to 40 percent power between the hours of six o'clock and 9 p.m that's so crazy 6 p.m to 9 p.m which is the main time people have heaters on they cook their dinner everything like that yeah to the point where the power companies have projected there's going to be rolling blackouts nationwide between those times sounds like california yeah but it's going to be australia wide wow how wonderful was it you that posted the meme of the coal cars? Um, yeah. <laughs> Electric car food? Yeah. That was, that was like, nice. Because these idiots, they don't get it. They're like, oh, it's green energy. It's electric. Motherfucker, have you looked into how that battery's mined? Have you looked into where your electricity comes from? And at the end of the day, what really gets me is this whole carbon thing. Okay. Oh, it's so bad. Actually, uh, that's probably one of the most healthiest things for the planet because that's what all the fucking trees, plants, and anything that's green essentially, quote-unquote, eats and then pukes out oxygen. So if we have more carbon, which is kind of a theory that the Earth did have more carbon at one time, things grew a lot fucking bigger. Things were huge, and the carbon shrunk, and that's why things shrunk, and it's like we got to get rid of all this carbon. It's like, you motherfuckers are dumb. And I didn't even go to fucking college and I know this shit. It's uh, it, where the carbon they want to get rid of, ironically. Yeah. It's, um, what was it? There's the issue of if it was truly about saving the planet, like I'm not a proponent of man-made climate change. I do think climate changes naturally. It goes in cycles. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is that, 
they're trying to make everything green and it's it's large scale taking away things that make life easier and hospitable for people. Energy system gets taken down a huge amount. Cars have to go to electric, all this. But they don't look at the biggest things. Pollution is real. Pollution is yeah. very real. Very. And the biggest thing driving pollution is consumerism. If it was really about the green agenda and protecting the planet, they'd say, um, yeah, Apple, you can't keep making a new phone every three years. We're going to force people to actually repair phones, fix them where they can. That makes a lot of, lot more fucking sense. And I've you're the first person that has, I've ever heard say something like that. Because... In America, and I'm sure it was like that early in Australia, we're similar in age, we always say, oh, man, they used to build them to last. They always mm-hmm. used to build things to last, whether it was a refrigerator, a, a washer, or whatever. And it, and if it broke, you you could either fix it yourself, and it was fairly easy, or, or you, you called the, the repairman, and, and they would come and do it, because that's what they specialized in. And in an, of doing that, you're promoting his small business. And now it's just a throwaway economy. Okay, oh, it stopped working. Uh, my, my phone's slow and, and not holding a charge. Better get a new one because I can't live without my phone. My computer, oh, well, it's doing this. Uh, I, I ran my podcast for the first year on Windows fucking 8 and <laughs> <laughs> made it happen. You know what I mean? Like you, But I, I come from an era like you just have to sometimes make things last or or do it with what you have like kind of like what ned kelly did with putting on the armor that he took from plows and and forging that and you know they did what they had you know are they smart super smart no but they knew how to survive they knew how to stretch things kind of like going back to the great depression they knew how to take what little food that they had stretch that out and make a meal that unfortunately I probably didn't do the best at passing it down to my daughter. She's more of a baker. She likes to bake than cook. I always tried to get her in the kitchen, you know, come on, you know, let's try and cook. But, you know, sometimes I'd have like a meal that I'm making and only like say I'm making like a, a dish with chicken and it called for chopped up chicken or whatever. And I look in the freezer. I'm like, Oh shit, I only have two chicken breasts, but it called for four. Guess what? I'm chopping them up in tinier pieces to make it look like there's more. So you get a little piece of chicken in each bite and you know, you do what you do. And you know, my, that's how my parents, you know, did things. And I, I carry that tradition on, but unfortunately I think it, 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 it stopped with me and I'm partly to blame, but you know, I can't, I can't force my daughter to, to want to cook if that makes sense either. True. It's, have you, you put it in this kind of an idea thought, like this thought process that nearly everyone I know, I don't know if this is uniquely Australian or not, but everyone has an antique from their great grandparents. That's great grandma's um, cabinet. That's great grandpa's sitting chair. Those things were built to last and they survived. That's how they become antiques. I don't think anyone in three generations are going to say, oh, that's great-great-grandpa's ghost's Ikea furniture. No. That's not going to be around. No, not at all. (laughs) Which which is true because I I have my granddad's spurs that he used to wear, you know, because I'm originally from out in Wyoming and Idaho. And years ago, my mom gave them to me she's like these were your granddad's and you know that's what he wore 
you know, all the time. And I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, and I, and I, I hold on to them. I have them in a special place. My daughter has a little bit of an old soul when it kind of comes to that. Like she likes the, the old things uh, passed down from, from family members and what have you. But there's too many people and kids out there today that are like, why would I want that old junk? You know what I mean? Or, or, or I'm not going to use that. That It's not on my phone. It's not an app. Yeah, it's like, okay, it, it, wait till shit hits the fan and you don't have a phone and, and, and you don't know how to fucking look for a fucking dandelion to eat. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, whatever the case is. And speaking of dandelion, I remember growing up thinking, you know, we were told they were poisonous. And come to find out, mm, mm-mm, every part of that dandelion's uh very beneficial for your heart. And you can eat every yes. single part of it. And I was yeah. told the exact same thing. Yeah, the little milk that, inside that, the stem. Yeah. Oh, that was supposed to that's be super why, poisonous. That's why. That's why you have to poison it with Roundup all the time. Yeah, because it's an ugly. It's an ugly weed, and it's poisonous. It's got no use. Well, it's got a lot of uses, actually. Uh huh. Yeah. Good. Good old man uh, Monsanto coming out with all that shit, all that fucking eighties propaganda, and now you look at it, and I'm 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 really into to learning how to forage more. I started a little bit with mushrooms and I'd like to learn how to identify more plants and stuff. But having said that, what was it? Two, two or three years ago, I was mowing my yard and I have a little stream that kind of cuts on the, on part of the property. And I, when we moved in, there was these small trees. I was like, I'm just going to let them grow. You know what I mean? It'll be privacy. I won't have to see the, the neighbor across the Creek or whatever. And I'm mowing along and I, I, kind of moving a branch out of the way and I look up and there's a berry and I'm like, wait a minute. So I get done mowing. I take a picture of the leaf. I throw it into Google. I have a fucking mulberry tree. I have not just one. I have three that the birds put there and I'm like, this is great. So I now have three mulberry trees on, on my property that I go out, you know, here probably in a couple months going to be picking them is, is wherever I can reach Sometimes I shake them and, and they'll fall down, but, or the birds get them before I do. But I, I was just like, wow, this is great. You know what I mean? And, and, but other people are like, oh, what a saw, oh, let's cut those down. You know, we don't need those, or that's just a, a dirty tree or whatever. And it's like, nah, dude, no, that, that's sustainability right there. Yeah. I think I've, I've worked the system out here where I've, we live in a new estate and there's a vacant block and there's a huge big garden area with a, a children's playground and stuff. And I tried to petition the council to get like a native food trust going where we can, we can have raised beds and all that type of stuff. They knocked it back saying it was a health and safety issue that you couldn't do that because everyone in the public would be eating the food and what happens if it's contaminated, blah, blah, blah. So I went down the permaculture route of identifying, getting seeds from indigenous tribes of native bush foods. Mm. And because they're native foods, if they grow naturally anywhere and they form anywhere, they're protected under the Flora and Fauna Act. Nice. So I've got my own garden. Birds come in, eat the seeds. They deposit them. It's almost like gorilla gardening a natural way. Yeah. So I'll take seedlings. I'll go out. I'll find a, a trail next to a hiking track or something. And I'll just plant a plant. So I know in the future, geez, I know where to get some Illawalla plum, plums from. Or I know where to get some native juniper. I can get some pig face. Um, I can get appleberries. I know where these things are because they're just growing naturally now. That's awesome. The fact that you thought about taking the the indigenous route, knowing that it would be protective, 
how many other people would have thought of that? You know, they'd be, oh, okay, you push back. We can't do it. I'll, I'll accept defeat. You're like, nah, <laughs> nah, hold my beer. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it a different way. Oh, so there's just got to be other ways for food, food security. And I think that's gorilla gardening is one of the big ones. I think anyone can do like, if there's a bit of grass somewhere, like pop some seeds down and see what happens. Yeah. Like you've got it. You had it naturally happen with birds with yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine how many times they're sprinkling it everywhere else they go. Oh, tons, tons. And we, we even, uh, we planted some raspberry, uh, bushes, uh, along the Creek and, and what have you. And they're starting to finally produce a little bit more. They, they take a while and what have you, but I still want to, I want to put in some fruit trees. Um, and I wish I would have done this when we first bought the prop, uh, the house and what have you five years ago. Cause they'd be close to maybe kind of producing something may depending on the variety. But I have a little section where we could put in some apples or cherries trees or, or whatever. And there you go. You go out and bam, uh, I think I want a pear today. Okay, I'm going to go pick it off the tree. I mean, growing up on the, the farm in Idaho, we had a, uh, it was a, I want to say like a, a, a it might have been a Granny Smith. It was a very sour apple tree. And I, my mom would always go out. Now, she was pregnant at the time with my sister, but she'd pick them off and put a little salt on them and eat them. I would just reach up and, and eat them because I was like, man, these are sour. I love I love sour stuff. <laughs> and we moved in here, and we have a, a crab apple tree out front. And it, and it's funny, my big dog Bane, he's a Rottweiler Mastiff mix. He could care less about it. like I'll I'll pick one off and I'll eat a little and, and try to give it to him, and he'll put it in his mouth and he'll just be like, I don't like it. Now my coon hound, he sees me go over there and he's like, okay, dad we're eating some crab apples and I'll sit there and I'll, I'll pit, pull one down, eat it, give him some, pull one down, give him one, eat one. And, and he, he'll sit there as long as I'm, I'm standing there pulling these little crab apples. And they're only like, I mean, they're smaller than a cherry. You know what I mean? You get like a couple little nibbles out of it, but he, he loves them. I love them. And you know, the woman, she's like, you're nuts. And I'm like, why? And she's like, why would you eat those? I'm like, well, a they're fruit and they're not going to hurt you. She's like, well, what if it hurts a dog? I'm like, it's not, he's not going to eat it if it's not good for him, you know? And she's like, okay, well, he's not dead yet. And it's been three years. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's crazy in my region of Victoria, it's, it's all regional farmland. So the biggest thing is farmers are constantly poisoning blackberry. Blackberry air quotes, weed is everywhere, which it does. It grows everywhere it can, but no one's actually utilizing it themselves. Like, you could tame it and prune it to a, a section of area where you can actually harvest it. Yeah. But everyone poisons it. No one around here picks a wild blackberry because it could be poisoned. That's that's a shame. It is. Absolutely blackberries, is. man, they're delicious. It's um it's funny, like you're talking about foraging. There's a, a new class that was a, a program I'm a manager of at my school that's taken three years to get off the ground. It's called a paddock to plate initiative where we teach kids about farming and where food comes from. We grow food. We have chickens, all that type of stuff. And the kids were out there picking strawberries for the first time and they were eating them straight off that. And I was pulling the stems off and I was eating the stem and dropping the leaves. And the kid's like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's the most nutritious part of a strawberry is the stem. Mm -hmm. The fruit's really amazing, but the best part you can eat is the stem. And the kids were blown away. They had no idea. It's kind of like uh, the orange peel. 
the peel of an orange yeah. has, I mean, it's not the greatest tasting, but I remember my grandmother, she would peel an orange and she would eat every piece of that peel and then eat the orange at the end and, because that's where all the nutrients were. Yeah, that's why they, people put the zest from lemons and uh-huh. other citrus foods into um, into like cakes and things like that because it's actually highly nutritious. Yeah. Yeah, people just need to... Oh, shit. I, oh, I do have it. I brought it back here. Oh, this, is, this isn't the one. We have a store here called Tractor Supply, and I used to go there for my chicken feed, but I don't anymore. I, I do get my dog food there. But they have these little uh, laminated pamphlets. This one is Mushrooms of the North uh, Atlantic States. And it has all sorts of, like it gives a description. And there's, there's good ones that they'll, they'll tell you, if, like, like this one here. You can see that, you know, it has a, the death. You mm-hmm. know, it's deadly or whatever. So, like, if you're out foraging and you, and you come across one, you can kind of identify it. The last time I was there picking up dog food... They they had one that I hadn't seen before. They have ones like on snakes or, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. Put it in your backpack. It's waterproof. You can go. But it had um, plant fauna and, and uh, edible berries, and it, which is a lot more than it, – it, it's a lot – there's like a couple more pages than, than the mushroom one. But I was looking through it, and I was just like, holy shit, this is great. And I'm looking through, and I'm like, yeah, some of this shit grows in my yard. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I could probably just go out and eat this as long as the dogs didn't shit near it. But they're great, and if if listeners out there are kind of into that, and and you live in the states where you have tractor supply, and they're right at the checkout, pick one up and read it, study it, and obviously do your homework. You know, I, I spent probably God three, four years, if not longer watching videos on foraging mushrooms and and even then you still gotta you know be kind of cautious you know go look it up read them you know look on the internet because if you get the wrong mushroom you're not gonna have a allergic reaction you're gonna die so yeah i'm a i'm a 35 year old guy who regularly goes fishing hunting and foraging and i still if i have i'm in doubt I'll call my dad and take a photo of it and ask the expert, yeah. is this one okay? The color's slightly off. I'm not 100% sure. And he says, if in doubt, chuck it out. Yep. And, and what a lot of people don't know is, because there's always that myth that, oh, you can't touch a, a wild mushroom with your bare hands. It's You can. You also can take a little piece of that mushroom. If you're not sure, you can put it in your mouth and chew it. And if it doesn't taste right or gives you uh, like a spit it out as long as you don't ingest it it's not going to kill you and i i have done it you know what i mean i'm like okay you know i'm like oh yep yep that's lion's mane and good to go now granite lion's mane does not have it might have i don't know if it says in here i don't think lion's mane has any um poisonous lookalikes no and i found a patch the three years ago where i found one and then this past fall i went back and i took a buddy from work 
I was like, hey, we, we got off a little early. I'm going to do this on, on this little hiking trail. Do you want to come with? He's like, yeah, I'll come with. And I walked over, and I, I got one. It was about the size of a baseball. Cut it cut it off the, the, the stump and what have you, and started looking around, and there was like three, four, five, or six more starting to grow. And I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah. I can't wait. I, and I let them go because I'm like, I'm going to let you guys grow, let you guys do your little thing. That way I know I have a little source to come back. And one day I can harvest enough to put you in some clam chowder instead of using clams. Man, lion's mane's great. It, if you ever, if you ever get a chance to eat fresh lion's mane and you can, it's one of the very few mushrooms you can actually eat raw. Like you can just pick it off the thing and, and eat it. Most of them you have to cook, but you saute that in a little bit of butter. It has the same texture and taste as lobster. See, that story went uh, is a lot better than I thought it was. I thought it was going to go very dark. You know, I was taking the guy from the office. I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was edible or not. I made him test it first. <laughs> we heard some banjos playing. <laughs> Shit got weird. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, man, I, I, I love talking foraging and... I, I even talk, tried to tell this to Ryan because he's like, dude, I live in the desert. There's nothing There's nothing here I can forage. I'm like, you'd be surprised at how much is probably around you that you do not even know that you can actually. He's like, all I got is cactus. I'm like, he's like, I can eat the prickly pear. I'm like, I get you can eat the prickly pear. However, I bet you there's more more cactuses that are edible in your area and plant fauna than you realize that you could just go out and forage if if need be. I mean, obviously you can eat any lizard, snake, javelina if you want, even though they're they're like their version of raccoons here. Um, you know, they get into the trash, but they're a tiny little pig. And yeah, and he's like, eh, I, I don't know. Well, what's the uh, the Indian tribe for Arizona? The, the major one, anyway. That I don't know. I can look it up. Because that'll be your first port of call. Find out what the um, the First Nations people were eating because they survived in a desert. Yeah. Oops. I got to spell it right first. Sorry for the... I was guessing Navajo, but I've got no idea. That's it, because it's one of the very few I know. It, it, it could be Navajo. Of Arizona. Yeah. Navajo, Apache, and Hopi. Hey. And then there's one that, who, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Tahono Uudaham. Oh, and there's 15 more. So not that I support Amazon, but... Generally, you find a lot of those types of books on Amazon if you can't find them at a local book supplier. So, Ryan, if you're listening, you need to actually jump on and see if you can find a Navajo um, foraging book. Yeah, or Paiute. Paiute's another one that's that's yeah. kind of popular. Um, there's like 15. It, it said there's like 15. Some of the – I'm not even going to try and say these names because I don't want to bu- butcher them because <laughs> I will not do them any, any justice. But, yeah, I mean, you've got the ho- – the Hopi, the Navajo, the Apache, the Pima, Paiute. 
I mean, there's tons. And they lived in the desert area for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, you can survive. And, you know, it's just kind of goes back to what I always say. When you're sick, everything around you in your natural environment, there's something there that can actually help you get over your your ailment. Whether it's a, a bee sting or you got, you know, poison ivy or... Uh, a cut to help cauterize it, to help mend the wound. You know what I mean? And and believe it or not, go to your, your local farmer's market and get some local honey. The next time you get a cut, put honey on it. It's going to heal 10 times faster, and you won't get that, that, that hard, thick scab. And it, it, it's almost like a a gel-like scab, so it still moves and, and, and what have you. There's so many health benefits to honey, and... People are like, oh, you can't do the honey because that's the sign. Bees, oh, oh, bees, uh, secret societies. There's a um a, an old French woman who I used to live next door to as a child, and she had an old recipe from back home where was it called Voulou Voucher Sssoi? <laughs> Very close, <laughs> Menage de toi. Menage de toi. <laughs> uh, it's you cut up an onion, a white or a brown onion. Slice it up, pop it in a jar, pour honey over it. Yes. And in the next 10 to 15 minutes, the liquid that rises to the top, you scoop that out and you sip that if you've got a sore throat and it absolutely kills whatever's going on with your throat. That's funny. And without fail, that always works. I use it all the time now. You mentioned that and I just started seeing within the last week on my raging addiction on TikTok, people talking about um, putting onion and then honey in there and you let it set. You can take that liquid and, and you know, for a sore throat, but also if you have uh, a fever or whatever, take that honey and actually, once it's like all absorbed into, with, with the onion and what have you, take a teaspoon of that and eat it on a daily basis. And it, it's supposed to help as well. And uh, it's funny you bring that up. I'm like, because I never knew that. And then I seen another one on the red or purple onion and they say not to cook it, but eat it on a daily basis, there's so much health benefits to a red and purple onion. And I was just like, no shit. Well, it should make sense because it's very much stronger in taste than it is to what a brown or a white onion is. Yeah. You have a little bit of that and it can overpower a meal. Yeah. Despite its flavors alone. Big time. The only other thing, um, foraging wise, like medicinal, the one that I always go to is milk thistle. You put milk thistle on warts and it gets rid of them naturally. Like how many people go off and get warts frozen off Oh, yeah, yeah. My doctors. Just put milk thistle on it. That gets rid of it. Does it work with genital warts? Um, I think you have to rub it really, really hard. <laughs> really hard. And, get, and then get your own milk out at the same time. Nice. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, we can, we, can, we can wrap if you want. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to end it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just rub, put some milk thistle on there, folks. So. I think, uh, I think I think it's called a ghost thistle, ghost, and yeah. he sells it on his Patreon. I do. I do. <laughs> Top tier members. Yeah, I will. Hey, you want some milk thistle? It goes really good with Brogurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. And Drew, thank you for your time. Plug your stuff one more time before we get out of here. That way it's fresh in their memories as they're, they're ending this podcast, and they can jump right over and, and start listening to you. 
No worries, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast. M I S E N is the spelling. Find me on all the usual podcatchers, and you can reach out to me on Instagram or my email, which is drewmisson88 at gmail.com. Nice. And uh, again, thank you. I always love talking with you, and I always have a laugh. I always have a laugh. Dark humor. <laughs> Gotta love it. And to my audience out there, remember do your own research and think for yourself. Hey everybody, it's closing time. You don't gotta go home, but you can't stay here.